And welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Again, you can find me on my Twitter account, at JakeJakeNY, for rolling commentary and links to stories that you'll want to see, and also on Facebook, Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K. Uh, if you're tuning in thinking that you would have a definitive result in the Israel election, <laughs> the Israeli election, uh, almost now a week after the votes were, were cast, um, you're out of luck. Uh, it is basically the same impasse that the country was in going in with a slight wrinkle. Uh, what's, same about, what's the same about things is that Avigdor Lieberman and his Israel Beitenu party continues to kind of hold the, the string, you know, holding the strings of the puppet there, and he can decide basically which which party is going to really lead the government. He can do that. Uh, the wrinkle that's changed is that the Arab parties got decent turnout from Israeli Arab voters, and they now have 13 seats in the parliament, which may be an all-time high for them, but it's a, it's a very high number for them. And as usual, they will not join in a coalition against, with any side. They, they, I mean, this is a group of parties that even though they participate in the Knesset, they don't really fully support the idea of the state of Israel, as crazy as that sounds, that they would be members of a parliament that they don't really recognize. But because of that, they don't join in with any ruling coalitions, never have, and I don't think they ever will. But some of them, not all of them, some of the Arab, Arabs who have been elected to the parliament will recommend or have recommended Benny Gantz, the co-leader of the Blue and White Party, to be the prime minister. Uh, that doesn't really mean all that much. It, just, it could mean that Benny Gantz will have the first chance to form a ruling government coalition uh, because President Ruvain Rivlin, which, as you may know, the presidential position in Israel is ceremonial. However, the president is allowed to choose. He has the power to choose which side gets to form a government first. So Ruvalin Rivalin right now is in a strong position. I'll talk more about that later. But the uh, the Arab parties, most of them, with the exception of Balad, which is, I think, basically the strongest Arab party. So, of course, it just goes to show how disconnected from the idea and the mission of the state of Israel the Arab parties still are, much to their own, you know, really their own detriment. Uh, as has been pointed out by many experts over the years, Arabs who live in Israel proper have more rights and privileges and certainly better economic prospects than Muslims and certainly Arabs in almost any other part of the world uh, in their own countries. You know, if they immigrate to the United States, that's another story, or, or, or to a Western country. But Arabs who live in Israel have a pretty good life compared to their uh, counterparts in just a stone's throw away in Syria, in Jordan, in Egypt, you name it. You're not a member of the ruling class in those countries that I just mentioned, Saudi Arabia. You're, you're in bad shape, pretty much, economically, educationally, the whole thing. Um, so that's the wrinkle, the wrinkle being, but that's still a deadlock because, because Gantz cannot use those 13 Arab party members to form a coalition. He actually has fewer seats in the government, really, to, to come into a coalition talk than Netanyahu does. Even though Netanyahu and the Likud party came in slightly second, they, but they did come in second overall in this list of, of elections. Now, the Israeli elections can be really, really complicated. The party that wins the most votes isn't necessarily the party that's going to be able to form a ruling coalition. That's not the way it works. And in 2009, when Netanyahu returned to the premiership, that's exactly what happened. Likud did not win the most votes in that election. 
but the overall right-wing bloc did. And so after the, the left was allowed to get that first shot at creating a coalition and they could not do it, Netanyahu got the second shot and he was able to form uh, the government that, that's been with, with him in place. Now, obviously, there's been elections since then, but, but Netanyahu has been prime minister ever since. Now, Netanyahu knows that his Likud party came in second. He knows that he's sort of between a rock and a hard place because Yisrael Beitenu won eight seats this time. They won five in April. So they have even more, uh, bar- a, a bigger bargaining chip right now. And Netanyahu is just not really banking on Avigdor Lieberman ever supporting him for prime minister or joining into a coalition again. Even though Yisrael Beitenu is a right-wing party, but it is not a religious party, and its war with the its feud with the religious parties in Israel has made it un, has made a Lieberman unwilling to join into any government coalition that will not pass his Haredi draft bill, the bill that would require more ultra orthodox men to join the army. He also wants civil marriage in Israel. Right now, it doesn't matter how non religious you are; you got to get married somehow, in some way connected to the chief rabbin in Israel, and, and Lieberman and his people want that changed. He wants the, the deal that would allow more open prayer at the Kotel, the Western Wall, uh, which of course means having in the women's section, women being able to lead services and read the Torah and handle the Torah and things like that, which the Haredim very much oppose. He wants that implemented. And he also wants the conversion laws in Israel reformed. Listen, I, I think that a number of his demands are reasonable, but I don't think he's carrying them out in a reasonable way. You can have reasonable demands and things that you want happen in Israeli society that you think are fair um, without holding up a government, without saying I'm not going to join into a coalition, without jeopardizing Israel's political future. Now, he's forced two elections now. He resigned from the Netanyahu government over supposedly protesting the way that Gaza was being handled, and that forced the April elections. Then he wouldn't join in the coalition, supposedly over the Haredi draft bill, and that forced the September elections because he wouldn't join the co- into any coalition. And now the question is, will he, join, will he create a third election by continuing not to join with either side and create a coalition? Um, I think that a third election would be disastrous for Israel. I think that they really need to have a resolution to all of this. And the resolution has been the one that you've heard me talk about here on Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network many times over the last year. I continue to propose this. And the only thing that I can say is it must be too reasonable. <laughs> so that it, that's the reason why it's not working out. But the reasonable fact is Israel is a right-wing country. The plurality, really, the, the majority of voters in Israel want a right-wing government. They don't want a super right-wing government. They don't want necessarily a super center right-wing government. They want a Likud policy-run government. And the way that we know that is because the party that got the most votes, the Blue and White Party, their policies, other than being dead set on removing Netanyahu from prime minister, their policies are not really any different in any real meaningful way from Likud, which is why the, the fact that most of the Arab Party members are recommending Benny Gantz for prime minister actually could very much hurt Benny Gantz more than it will help him. Because the voters in Israel who are right-wing and don't trust the Arab parties, with good reason, because, again, most of the members of the Arab parties, even though they want to participate in the, in the Knesset, don't really recognize the state of Israel's existence in a full way. They don't. They don't support it, that's for sure. So Benny Gantz getting their help is not really such, such, such help in, in, the, in, the, in the eyes of a lot of the electorate in Israel, and that, sh- that should be remembered. But 
it makes the most sense because their policies are most the, mostly the same for Likud and the blue and white parties to form a unity government, to use their 33 seats for the blue and white, 31 for Likud. Right there, you've got it. 64 seats for the 120-seat Knesset, that's more than enough. Right there, they wouldn't need any other party to join in with them. And they would have a coalition government, just like that. And that could solve a lot of problems. It would solve numerous problems. First, it would, again, it would create the coalition government and, and avoid new elections. It would force the smaller parties, the, the Haredi parties and Yisrael Beitenu and anybody else who wants to hold the Israeli government hostage has been, has been the case on in many occasions in the past where small parties that were the key to getting a small majority were able to make outlandish demands and get them met to join into a coalition. And that would be nice if that were not the case this time. So what's the problem? Why isn't this happening because this is such clearly the rational choice. Like I said, Likud and Blue and White, their policies are really not all that discernible. And I know that there's a couple of you are listening and you know that there are some differences on here on this and that. But I'm telling you that whatever they put on paper, especially the Blue and White, the truth is the Blue and White Party's only reason to exist is to get rid of Netanyahu. Other than that, they're basically Likudniks. <laughs> I know there's a couple of exceptions, but basically that's what the Blue and White Party is. And I understand it. Not that I don't support Netanyahu. I think Netanyahu still is the most qualified and correct leader for Israel right now. I have called for him to start grooming a successor. I've called for that for five, six years. I I do believe that that any government that is in control for as long as Netanyahu's group has been in control is susceptible to scandal, susceptible to just basic rot, for lack of a better word. So I'm not saying that this is not an issue here. But right now, I don't think that there's really anyone who's qualified enough to run the country. And that is, again, another good reason why there should be a unity coalition government. Because what's happened, what happens in those kinds of governments, and it's happened twice before in Israeli history, is you get a unity government between two major opposing parties. And what they agree to do is they agree to rotate the prime minister's position. Now, this happened, maybe a lot of you might remember this happened after Menachem Begin stepped down. And it was really kind of a deadlock in the election. And Yitzhak Shamir, the head of the Likud party, and Shimon Perez, the head of the Labor Party, shared the prime ministership. Shamir was the, was the premier for a couple of years, and then Perez, Shimon Perez was, was the prime minister for a couple of years. And that's how that worked out. And it's happened other times in Israeli history, too. So to me, this makes the most sense also on the whole case of Netanyahu and really sp- still being the only one who can be really be ready and prepared to be prime minister, and having a special period where Benny Gantz can really smooth out his rough edges and be ready to be prime minister. So in other words, not only would the unity government between blue and white and Likud make the most sense, but it would make the most sense to have a rotation where Netanyahu starts out as prime minister for the first two years, not because Likud won the most votes, because they didn't, but because Likud represents the larger right-wing bloc that is still the ma- clearly the majority of the Israeli voters, and that was the result of this election. The right-wing voters still had the most votes, because Yisrael Beitenu, for all of its issues with the, the religious and secular aspects of, of, this, uh, of this national debate, is still overall a right-wing party, especially when it comes to matters of defense and security and all of that. So... Netanyahu, it would make the most sense if he would be the prime minister for the first two years, start to transition himself out of government. He would be prime minister if, he, if this happens for 12 straight years and 15 years overall, by far the longest serving in Israeli history. He would have all those accolades and all that incredible experience behind him. 
And Gantz would have the two years he really needs, because he needs the time, to become ready to be really be prime minister of Israel. Because as many of you might remember, the Blue and White Party was slapped together at the last minute before the April elections. Benny Gantz is, and this is a good thing about him, he's not a career politician. Sometimes he talks like one, sometimes he acts like one, but, but for the most part, I don't think he's ready for the pressures, the PR-type pressures, the other kinds of scrutiny that an Israeli prime minister is going to come under. One of the things he's going to have to get used to is he's going to find out real quick that the world's opposition, those who do oppose Israel, and again, I think a lot of people in the world are starting to come around to Israel, countries like India and Saudi Arabia, that kind of thing. Obviously, I think the overall trend is better for Israel than it is bad. But in the liberal Western elite-type countries and communities, the hatred of Israel is strong, and what a lot of people in Israel don't understand is it's got nothing to do with Netanyahu. <laughs> they, could have, uh, they could have an Arab leader of Israel and they would still hate Israel. So Gantz is going to have to get used to that. I, if he became prime minister tomorrow, I don't know how he would respond to that. I don't think he's got, a, he's got a thick enough skin yet. And I think he'll get it over the course of a couple more years of waiting. And being the, the nation's sort of co-prime minister or prime minister in waiting is a better term. I think he'll be ready then. But he needs more grooming. He needs more preparation. He's not there yet. And um, he, should, he, he needs to get there. Now, I'm not the only one who thinks that this solution, the solution of a national unity government between Likud and Blue and White with this rotation is the best idea. You get a very clear understanding that this is what President Ruvain Rivlin wants as well. Now, Netanyahu has been chastened in a way by the fact that Likud came in second in this election. He very quickly went on his website as national nationally broadcast, internationally broadcast website and said, and reached out to Benny Gantz and said, let's, let's start working on a national unity government. And Rivlin was very quick to praise Netanyahu for that. Rivlin wants this too. And I think he wants, he wants to avoid an election and he wants these two major parties to find some kind of an agreement. And, and if, if, if someone told Rivlin, hey, here's the deal, Netanyahu gets to be prime minister for a couple of years and then it goes to Gantz, I think Rivlin would take that deal in a second and would try to push the the Knesset members that he meets with, to go for that. And again, that's, that's what I think is the most logical, logical thing, re- resolution of this election and would help break a deadlock. Naturally, because Israeli politics is exceedingly nasty and unnecessarily nasty, you had both Gantz and Lieberman respond in a nasty way on Friday to Netanyahu's offer. You had Gantz basically saying, we came in first, and kind of, made, again, it was sort of almost a, a childish kind of thing. Y- yes, his party came in first, but, <laughs> but by a razor-thin margin, and again, not representing any wider, wider block. Likud may have come in second, but Likud represents a much w- larger segment of the country. Blue and white, without the Arab parties, has only 44 seats to speak of on its side. It's not enough. Likud, even without Yisrael Beitenu, has like 55 or 56 seats on its side. So, I mean, look, folks, it's, it, it's clear that the, the right wing in Israel is the majority. Luckily for blue and white, they don't really have a policy, major policies that really get in the way of that, so they can work with them. This is not like Likud and labor with major differences over security and those kinds of things back in the 80s and the early 90s. This is not like that. So Gantz responded in a sort of non-committal, almost whiny, I came in first thing, and it was not a... It was not a a gracious response. Lieberman came in and uh, his response was, I was trying to trick us. Another nasty response. 
And then some of the people a little bit lower down the list on the blue and white uh, list, like Moshe Ya'alon, basically came out and, and it showed no movement whatsoever to said, hey, we, blue and white won't sit in any government with Netanyahu. So, you know, basically endorsing another type of impasse. I mean, I don't think, I don't know what blue and white think, uh, thinks is going to happen here. If with their 44 seats that they have in their left-wing coalition, center-left coalition, is added to the Arab parties, that's 13 seats, they would still need the Israel Beitenu eight seats to get to 65 or to get to over 61. And like I said, there's not one Arab party member who's going to join into a coalition with any Israeli government, right or left. It's not going to happen. So blue and white isn't there yet, folks. Even if they get the Israel Beitenu on their side, that puts them only at 52. There's no way, I mean, we can play this math game all day and all night and all week. And I think there's a lot of people in Israel who are doing that. And they're not going to come up with any solution other than, <laughs> either, there's really only two things that could happen. Either, I think the best thing is, as I've said already a number of times here, Likud and Blue and White forming a, a national unity coalition government. Or some kind of deal where Avigdor Lieberman and his eight seats decides to move over to the Likud again and says, uh, I, I'm, I'm satisfied with something. Something is given to him that, that it brings him over to their side, and that would give them about 64 seats or 63 seats, and that would be enough, obviously, for a very tenuous majority. Again, not just because it's 63 or 64 seats. That's not the problem. The problem would be, how long could Avigdor Lieberman and the ultra-religious parties sit in the government together? I mean, I don't know how, how that would work. So those are the two, those are the really the only two options. And I think the first option, again, is a better option for a number of reasons. Because the blue and white and Likud join together in a national unity government, I think other parties will join in as well and find some way to even make it an even bigger coalition, which would be nice. And again, I think it's important for Netanyahu, who is now 69 years old, to start thinking about transitioning out. I don't think that the country desperately needs him out of office. But a two-year period where the country can make a proper transition from the longest-serving Israeli prime minister, I think, is a healthy process. Would, could be a healthy process, despite the nastiness and everything that goes on. So I think that that would be a very, very strong resolution to this. And, uh, but I have to say, it's, it's so rational and makes so much sense that I have, a, I have low expectations that it's actually going to work out. <laughs> because... They, they would really need to make this agreement. I mean, the, the fact that Israel could be fa- faced with a third election in a year is really, is really a rough situation. It's going to really lead to some tremendous dis- disillusionment in the political process in Israel. There's just not enough people in the country to continue to rejigger things, even with larger turnouts from different groups. It just won't make enough of a difference. And this is the way these things need to be, need to be resolved. Now, I want to take a look at the elections just a little bit from the U.S. perspective, because this is something that has been jumping out at me in the last several years, but certainly during this election, it's another example of that. You know, the American news media doesn't, had never got the memo that Israel is mostly a right-wing country. They don't really understand that. They, they think that Israel, and they think that every country should be left-wing. And of course, you'll, you may notice that the American news media and the European news media, whenever anybody who isn't a radical leftist is elected somewhere, they are always called far-right. So it makes it sound like the Ku Klux Klan has won every election that the ultra-liberals haven't won. This is a tactic that, that people use either wittingly or unwittingly. It's very, very annoying. Um, so everything that Netanyahu does is ultra right wing and everything that everyone else does is, is normal and rational and, and smart. 
It's, it's a typical kind of reaction to things. But there's a lot of talk, and I keep hearing this from folks, uh, and you probably have heard this too, worrying about how American Jews, especially American Jews who are not so religious, are not so supportive of Israel. And new generations of young American Jews don't feel a connection to Israel and yada, yada, yada. So we keep hearing that story on one hand. And then when elections roll around and the results aren't what they want, we hear about how American, American Jews are upset about this election. Now, you understand that those two stories don't jive together. First, we're told that American Jews are losing their connection and don't know anything or care that much about Israel. Then we hear that they're outraged about the election results in Israel. Those two, results, those two stories don't work, folks. Either the American people is dis- are disconnected from Israel, the American Jewish people are disconnected from Israel in increasing numbers for whatever reasons. And of course, the reasons I think they give are outrageous. They usually basically say, well, it's because Israel isn't liberal enough. I mean, you have, a, you have an American people that are just compl- very, very uninformed about Israel, don't feel that connection. It's got nothing to do with what government's running Israel. But we're told that's, we're given this narrative that there's, a, that there's this disconnect. The American Jews don't know about Israel. They don't care as much about it. And then we're also told that they're outraged about an election result. Now, those two things don't work together. Either one is true or, or the other is true, or maybe they're both false. But they can't both be true at the same time. They cannot. Another um, really th- thing that I think just produces a lot of outrage and bothers me greatly is when you do have a number of instances where a cup work where American Jews will make a statement about Israeli politics. It'll be the first time that they've talked about it for a while. They'll say something about something, and yet at this, at, 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 and then at the same moment, they'll betray the fact that they're completely ignorant about a situation in Israel. This happened to my wife a couple of months ago. She was visiting with some camp friends. She went to a, a Jewish summer camp, like many of us have. And she was visiting with some camp friends. And these people are not very religious, um, and they're certainly not very politically uh, conservative. But one of her camp friends did move to Israel, made Aliyah, and married an Israeli man. And she lives in Israel in Modi'in, by, uh, incidentally. And they were asking her about the, is, you know, about the election that was coming up. And they were all very supportive of blue and white or anything to get rid of Netanyahu. And then at one point, my wife mentioned something about Iron Dome, or the woman who has now moved to Israel mentioned something about Iron Dome, and everyone other than my wife and this woman who was from Israel, now lives in Israel, didn't know what Iron Dome was. I mean, how you can purport to say anything about Israeli politics and to even talk about it and not know what Iron Dome is? I mean, are you kidding me? This is an example of what I think has got to be really, really frustrating for anybody in Israel or anybody in any situation for that matter who has to deal with the strong opinions and the self-righteousness of certain people who don't know the first thing about your situation. I mean, to have Israeli voters and the Israeli people, the majority of, which, of whom are, are right-wing, as I continue to say, and there's no, there's no evidence of it to, to the contrary. I mean, it's just the, the overwhelming amount of evidence is that the is that the clear majority of Israelis are right-wing. To have this overwhelming majority of Israelis who are right-wing have to hear criticism from American Jews or from any, any Jews in the world who don't even know what Iron Dome is has got to be one of the most frustrating things that, 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 that they have to experience. And of course, I think that's really similar to anyone, for example, people who might run a business and they run their business every day. And to hear criticism, not from a customer. It's one thing, listen, if a customer comes to your business and says, hey, you, you, your, your business isn't serving me properly, that's, that's different. But I'm talking about someone who knows nothing about your business and just walks in and says, this is a dumb, I don't like what you're doing here. This, uh, this is terrible. 
and you're not a, and they're not a customer and they're not anyone who knows anything about the running of your business. I mean, imagine how frustrating that must be. But this is continuing to happen. Uh, there are American Jews who can't read or understand a word of Hebrew. There are American Jews who can't tell you who the prime minister of Israel was before Netanyahu or any other prime minister other than Netanyahu. There are American Jews who don't know the situation in Israel as far as terrorism is, is concerned. The American Jews who clearly don't understand the relationship with the Palestinians. There are American Jews who go around saying words like occupation. There, there's no part of Israel or, or, that, that's occupied. There are areas of Israel that are disputed territory, officially, even by people who are very anti-Israel, like in the UN, designated as disputed territory. But there's no, there's no occupation. It's a loaded term. When, they, when people say occupation to describe Israel, they mean Tel Aviv, they mean Haifa, they mean West Jerusalem, anywhere where there's a Jew. That's what they, for that matter, Brooklyn is occupied. The, the, neighbor, the Jewish neighborhoods in Brooklyn are occupied too. I just understand that. But you've got American Jews who, who walk around thinking that. So these are very, very ignorant, very, very disconnected. People who have absolutely no business saying anything about Israel until they get themselves a little bit more educated, and a lot more educated. And, and, you know, and I guess this, this example, I mean, these, these were people who had gone to Ivy League schools. This, my, my, my wife wasn't out with a bunch of uneducated women here. These were American Jewish women, some of whom went to Ivy League schools, some of whom have you know, high-profile careers, who didn't know what Iron Dome was. And it wasn't like they misheard it. This wasn't like a crowded room. This was someone's private home, and the, word was, the term was repeated a number of times. They didn't know what Iron Dome was, and yet they felt that they were... They had every single right to be indignant about Netanyahu, to be indignant about the right-wing Israeli uh, voters, and to tell them what to do. Just extraordinary. And I'm sure many of you listening have similar instances. I don't care. Listen, it doesn't matter if someone is, is right-wing or left-wing to me. You express your opinion. And, and, and even people who don't know anything certainly have the right to express your opinion. I'm not saying these people don't have the right to say anything. But they should be embarrassed to say anything when you're that ill-informed. Not censoring you, but it's just it's outrageous for someone to, to speak that way. And listen, you can be very, very informed and still be wrong. <laughs> that, that happens a lot, too. That happens quite a bit. But this has to stop. This has to stop. And for Israel to continue to move forward, look, I want Israel to have a good relationship with the diaspora Jewish community. And I think it's important for people who really do understand the situation in Israel on the ground to come to the United States and to visit with American Jews. And I think it's absolutely imperative for every Jewish day school and every Jewish, even Hebrew school, to have some kind of Zionism curriculum that is based in fact and presents a fair and, and positive image of Israel. And, you know, the fact that I even have to mention day schools is, is, you know, there are still American Jewish day schools. And I'm not talking about really Haredi day schools that are a little bit in an iffy place when it comes to Israeli statehood. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about modern Orthodox Jewish day schools that still, I think for the most part, do not have a solid enough Zionism education. They might send the kids to the Israel, you know, the Salute to Israel parade. They might say that they're Zionists all the time, but do they really learn the history of the state of Israel in a way that gives them the tools to support the state of Israel and defend the state of Israel in an academic setting when they get out into the secular world? I don't know. Now, I was a student at the Yeshiva Flatbush in the 1980s when they had already established a very rigorous and fact-based AP-level Zionism curriculum for us that basically spanned all four years of high school. And a lot of schools have adopted it. And that's fantastic. But not enough. 
I still meet a lot of modern Orthodox kids who don't know the first thing about some of the most important historical facts in Israel. And these are the modern Orthodox Jews. So you can imagine who you're, when you're dealing with kids who don't have any real formal Jewish education. Look, I think that the situation in, the Israel, uh, in Israel, the political situation, will be resolved. I, I, I just don't know if it'll be the best resolution. But I would really hope that President Ruben Rivlin is able to win over the nastiness and explain to all the parties uh, present at the president's house over the next several weeks that, the, that a coalition, National Unity Coalition government, is the one that makes the most sense. This is what will work for Israel. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.